Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. On to episode three, and this week we've shifted focus from the power of lived experience through to the power of the mind. Commonly referred to as floating, flotation therapy or sensory deprivation has taken the world by storm, praised by celebrities and clinical professionals alike for its relaxing effects on both mind and body. Dr. Justin Feinstein is a clinical neuropsychologist and director of the Float Clinic and Research Centre at the Laureate Institute for Brain Research. His laboratory investigates the effects of flotation therapy on both the body and the brain, while also exploring its potential as a treatment for promoting mental health and healing in patients who suffer from anxiety and stress-related disorders. Justin's research has been published in a number of top scientific journals and has been featured in press around the world, including New York Times, Time Magazine, and Australia's Sunday Night. Welcome to the Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name is Sam Stewart, the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Uh, And with me today, I have Dr. Justin Feinstein. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, Thanks very much for coming all the way out to Australia. Is it your first trip? It is my first time in the country. How have you found it? Has Australia been pretty welcoming? Oh, it's a fantastic country you guys have. Really amazing. And I was just commenting on on just the diversity of cultures and opinions. And I think that's well reflected at this year's conference. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming. And it it is an honor to be here with you today. Uh, um, Your your biography, the things you've already accomplished in your career is really quite... Uh, a fascinating and astounding and uh, and I'm really looking forward to delving deeper into this today. Tell me about, let's just first of all, tell us about what your role is currently. So I'm currently the director of the Float Clinic and Research Center at Laureate Institute for Brain Research. It's a uh, nonprofit research institute located in Tulsa, Oklahoma and has quite a, a grandiose mission to really think outside the box, use all the modern tools of neuroscience available to us and come up with new ways for treating mental illness. And with that focus on mental illness, it kind of separates us from a lot of other institutes which incorporate a lot of different health disciplines. This is really about psychiatric care. That's really interesting. And has this been something, when did the float therapy first come across your, your radar? You know, I'm actually relatively new to floating in the sense that floating's been around for quite a few decades. I discovered it in about 2012. I was at uh, California Institute for Technology, and one of the research assistants in the laboratory had uh, tried floating for the first time and really uh, more or less implored me to, uh, to give it a shot. 
And uh, at the time, you know, there weren't any inviting float tanks in the sense that uh, most float tanks, when you Google the word floating, look kind of uh, enclosed, claustrophobic. Yeah. And uh, it's not easy because I think that creates a huge barrier to entry for a lot of people, just having these enclosed spaces. So uh, in many ways, this influenced actually our creation of the laboratory to create these wide open float pools that I'm sure we could discuss later. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Is, is floating something that's been around since you know, the caveman era? Has, have you had any research or any proof of anything that's happened before the last couple of decades? Or is it something that's really new? It, it's, it's relatively new in, in some sense. The, the original float tank, which was a seven foot, eight foot vat of water that you're immersed vertically in, you'd have this very strange looking space helmet with breathing tubes coming in, breathing tubes coming out. Wow. You know, this was dating back to the 50s, actually. And the only people who had ever set foot inside those float tanks were actually NASA astronauts in training for the race to the moon. Is that right? And, and one of the fascinating things, actually, going back to that, is <clears throat> NASA was sending not just their male astronauts, but also their female astronauts. And a biography came out a few years back called Promise to the Moon, and it turns out the female astronauts were outlasting the males in this environment two to one. They could handle about 10 or so hours in this environment. Males were about five hours. So wow. if NASA was taking this seriously, it should have actually been a woman on the moon first, not a male. Isn't that interesting? Is there anything in that? Is it, is it something that's, you know, the, the females, it's just some bio, biological um, genetic part of the, the female construction that, that made them be able to last longer? You know, it, it's a great question. As far as I know, it's never been followed up on. And huh. Of course, you know, a lot of this was, was confidential research that never got published or released. Yeah, this right. was taking place actually uh, in my state, Oklahoma. Um, it was at the Oklahoma City VA Hospital where, where Dr. J. Shirley had built this original laboratory back in 1957. Wow. It's, uh, it'd be interesting to see to delve deeper into that and see if there's uh, something further to it. But um, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, so floating has been around for a while. But I would say the, the more recent iteration of floating where you're lying horizontally on a bed of water saturated with Epsom salt, that, that's a newer iteration that started more or less in the early 70s. And then over the past decade, I would say there's been a true proliferation of this where new manufacturers are developing new styles of flotation tanks, much more inviting to the consumer. And that's where there's been an explosion. In fact, having been in the island now, or I, sh I, don't, I shouldn't say island, in the country, <laughs> it's bigger than America, um, there's been a, a, a quite, quite literally an exponential growth uh, growth over the past five years. About uh, five to seven years ago, there was a, a, apparently 10 float centers on the whole country. And uh, as far as I know, uh, right now, there's over 100. Wow. So you see this in a short period of time, this tremendous growth on the island. And I think that's partially related to the fact that float tanks are being made in a much more inviting way for the consumer. Uh, is, is it in a boom phase in America? 
as well? It is, yeah. America has a similar trajectory. Uh, around 2010, uh, there was probably only a few dozen places in, yeah. in the whole country. And uh, as of this year, there's uh, currently over 300 float centers in, in America. And a lot of these float centers or float tanks, are they freestanding or are they you know, like by themselves or are they, have they been incorporated into a holistic you know, massage, medicinal therapy or, or natural therapy or um, some sort of holistic approach? Yeah, you, you do get a mix. I would say uh, the vast majority are, are sort of dedicated float centers where they just have anywhere from you know, one to uh, half a dozen or so float tanks. And that's all they do. But there are these holistic centers where you're seeing it integrated with everything from uh, acupuncture, yoga, massage, um, various types of um, psychological uh, therapies as well, which I think is fascinating. And a lot of this, you know, is, is, is so new, we're not exactly sure of the combinations that uh, facilitate this in, in an optimum way yet. Yeah. So I'm really interested. I mean, I've, I've floated about three or four times before oh, and, and purely by, by, by accident, I guess someone bought me a voucher for it. And uh, that, it was more from the recovery uh, from sports or from, from doing some sort of uh, physical activity that they recommended it for. Uh, and I've also done one with my partner, my wife, uh, where we've, there's been two of us in, in one of these tanks. And so uh, I found it really such a soothing relaxing uh, environment to be in, especially when you've got three kids I mean, under the age of seven where life can get quite, uh, quite busy and, and manic at times. But tell, tell everybody what the float process is and, and, uh, and then we can delve into the science behind it. But for those people that have never floated before, just let them know what, what it is. So the, the basic premise behind floating is to create an environment that systematically reduces stimulation of the nervous system. You can imagine every single moment of the day, our nervous system is just being bombarded with information, whether it be our smartphone pinging away, or all the people in our world, visual information, auditory information, all of the stimulation from the outside environment coming in, in many ways, 24-7. <clears throat> And floating is, is really meant to create an environment that minimizes all of that stimulation. And the way it does it is actually quite simple. You create a, uh, a small pool of water. We're only talking about uh, uh, about a foot of water, so not very much water. But you saturate it with Epsom salt or magnesium sulfate. And Epsom salt has a very unique property. Uh, in the sense that it doesn't wrinkle your skin. You could be floating for hours and you won't have a single wrinkle on, on your skin. And it allows floating to occur. But when, when I say saturate, I think it's important to uh, uh, preface that by saying we're talking not just about a kilo or two you put into this. We're, we're talking about hundreds. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of kilos. In fact, in our pools, we have 900 kilos, a full ton of Epsom salt. In each tank. In each tank. And so when you lie in this water, it becomes essentially a mattress. You lie in it, you don't have to move a single muscle, it just holds you up and you're floating in this almost zero gravity-like state. So this is a key aspect of floating, but there's other things we calibrate. So for example, temperature. We try to heat the water and the air to match your skin temperature. So it's about 35 C. 
and it creates this environment where you lose track of the boundaries between where your body begins and ends. It sort of fuses with the environment because you don't have to thermoregulate. And then, of course, we're isolating uh, uh, vision and hearing. You're, you're in this uh, uh, light-proof and soundproof uh, uh, chamber, or in our case, a room. And I think a key part to recognize is you have complete control over the experience the entire time. You could get in and out of the pool or the tank whenever you want. You could have the lights on or off whenever you want. A lot of the centers have speakers in their pools so you could listen to music or guided meditations if you'd like. So the experience, even though it creates an environment of sensory reduction, you could kind of create your own experience. It's not necessary that you have to go into the complete sensory reduced state immediately. And Ultimately, I think the idea when we uh, did our research with the clinical populations is always leave the control in the hand of the patient. And when you do such a, a when you do this, it, basically the patients find this environment to be extremely inviting. But I think that's important for, for people to recognize is you are in complete control the entire time. It's such uh, such a, a great experience, uh, and I guess the only way to, to, to know what it's about is to go and give this a go, but is there any difference to the one, the lids that come down versus the open top? Is there any, any different benefit to, because I know with the open air ones where there's not a lid that you can wave your arm to get the lights on, and, and similar with the, with the dome that encloses over the top of you, it's also just, it's very easy, it's not, uh, not a scary process, but is there any different benefit to the different variable types that you can go to, sound on, sound off? Is there any, are there any variables that, that will affect or impact your, the outcome of the experience? Well, what I would say is not all float tanks are going to be created equal. Some are yeah. more well calibrated than others. Some have better soundproofing than others, and some have better light proofing than others. But I think one of the, the, the things to recognize is that once you're in the float environment and you're floating, there is actually quite a lot of crossover and similarity. Um, people who may be claustrophobic um, and start in, say, an open pool environment uh, will get acclimated and then move into the more enclosed environments and find that, in fact, the experiences are the exact same. Okay. So my, my own sense is that um, the basic essence of the experience is going to be the same regardless of where you float, but some of the calibration may be a little off in one uh, sensory channel or another. It's, uh, I know when I did it with, uh, is, is there any downside to doing it with your partner? I know when I was doing it with my partner, all of a sudden you bump into them, and you're like, oh, where am I? And you sort of come back to the real world, and you're like, well, you're, you, it's so easy just to bump, and all of a sudden you're hitting the side, and then you're bumping into your partner. Is, uh, is, is there any benefit to doing it solo versus with your partner, and do you not recommend doing it with somebody else? Yeah, you know, I, I've heard of this new trend of, of couples floating, and I... <laughs> You know, I, I would say that the experience is really meant to, to bring you closer to yourself. Okay. You know, in many ways, I, I find what's happening in modern society is we're constantly running away from ourselves. We're constantly distracting ourselves from ourselves. Yeah. And the idea of floating in many ways is, is to go inwards, to really reconnect with, with who you are. 
uh, your inner body and, and those sensations. And so it's really meant to be a, a form of, of uh, therapy where you're, you're actually in there by yourself. Now, with that said, for people who are not ready to do this by themselves, okay. and you have somebody who we'd like to try it with, I think that's a great way to acclimate, to, to begin the float experience, and then eventually sort of transcend into uh, your own solo experience. But, you know, it, it, is, it is interesting, and I agree with you, every time you touch anything in the environment, whether it's the side of a float tank or your partner, you're, 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 you're sort of leaving that conscious state. Yeah. And, and some of them, because uh, I've had varied places that I've been to, so the, the experience has varied a little bit, but they, they start off with the music to get you in the state and mainly go for five minutes or so, and then all of a sudden it's silence. And, and then all of a sudden this music will start playing again, five minutes to go. Uh, and sort of let you know that you're coming out of it, which was actually really quite nice. But man, you lose all track of time. That's right. Why are you doing that? You think was that an hour? That's right. You know, it, it, it's really actually uh, quite remarkable. So a lot of the patients I work with have severe anxiety disorders, and you tell them that okay, we're we're about to begin uh, an experiment. You're going to have a chance to float for you know up to sixty minutes or up to ninety minutes, and the patients look at me with this face of you know quite quite a bit of fear and trepidation and they say you know I don't think I could last five minutes by myself yeah. and then sure enough uh, uh, what we're finding is after an hour or an hour and a half has passed the music turns on the patient comes out and I'm doing the debriefing interviews and the patient says that was really something else I thought maybe 20 or 30 minutes had passed and then suddenly the music had emerged <laughs> So people don't recognize that when you don't have all of this stimulation coming in from the outside world, the whole notion of time actually becomes quite abstract, and it could fly by. Um, I've seen this before where even patients who had floated for several hours would come out and say, oh, it only felt like a half an hour or an hour had passed. So I think there is this very interesting time warp that happens in a float pool. Let's move on towards uh, and get and delve into the science of it. So, so tell me about how you've come about to apply this uh, from a scientific way and look to use this uh, to reduce anxiety, uh, lower blood pressure, and and other benefits that this can have for people with mental health challenges. Yeah. So, when I decided to pursue this as a line of research, you know, that we're going back about six or so years now, and there had not been at that time any peer-reviewed studies examining the applications of floating to psychiatric populations. And to me this was a, a major oversight. Um, my expertise is in the field of fear and anxiety disorders and you know this is such a ubiquitous condition. We're talking about over a quarter of the population that at some uh, degree suffers from severe stress and anxiety. And a lot of the currently available therapies are, are oftentimes not helping these patients. And so it seemed like a natural fit to attempt to explore this, but once again, there hadn't been any safety studies, there hadn't been any clear research studies to document the efficacy of this, so we had to tread cautiously. And so when we decided to build the Float Clinic and Research Center, it was really with this goal in mind. How do we create an environment that will allow these patients to actually engage in the therapy? And that's where the open float pool was critical. 
so many of the float tanks have enclosures. What we wanted to do is get rid of the enclosure and create a room around the pool that's soundproof, lightproof, temperature controlled, and humidity controlled. And by virtue of doing that, you actually don't need the enclosure. It's the same exact experience mm -hmm. as one of the smaller float tanks or float pods. And so we started these research studies uh, about, I would say, four years ago. Our first year was just literally getting our feet wet with healthy subjects, learning how to conduct research in this environment, measure things, physiological signals, for example, in this environment. And over the past um, three years, we've then begun to test this in patient populations, mostly across the spectrum of anxiety and stress-related disorders, but also patients with major depression. And uh, the, the first set of publications actually came out last year. So tell us about that. Well, I mean, tell us about the findings uh, and some examples or some life experiences that you've seen that have altered as a, re as a result of going through this therapy. Yeah, so, you know, we, we actually started with a relatively severe patient population. We're located next to one of the largest psychiatric hospitals in the Midwest. And we have a lot of patients in, in the area in quite a bit of need. These are patients who many were treatment resistant. They had tried several different courses of medications, different psychotherapies, and to no avail. And we allowed them to float. Uh, in our first set of studies, it was really examining the effects of a single float session, the short-term effects in terms of clinical changes, in terms of any safety issues that may arise. And one thing I should uh, say is we also, just to address any safety issues that could come up, had an intercom system. Uh, this was always on. The patient could always talk to us in a nearby control room if they have any issues, and we could always address anything that should come up. Mm -hmm. So in this first set of studies, we, we focused on this transdiagnostic sample across the spectrum of, of the mood and anxiety disorders in a relatively severe patient population, and we allowed them to float for up to an hour. We had 50 patients in this first study that was published last year, and what was interesting is out of the 50, 48 decided to float for the entire hour. They were told they could get out at any time, and actually half of them really wanted to actually float longer when we queried them during debriefing. Wow. So whatever was happening in there actually took them by surprise because anticipatorily uh, uh, they were not actually thinking they were going to last the entire hour. What was fascinating for me though were the clinical changes. Across the board, the, the largest reduction we saw was in state anxiety. We measured this with, with the Spielberger State Anxiety Inventory, and every single patient showed a pre- to post-float reduction in anxiety levels. And it wasn't just a small change. In fact, we compared uh, their anxiety levels to that of a healthy group of subjects who had no history of any psychiatric issues and had also never floated before. And the post-float anxiety levels of the patient groups were coming down to the pre-float anxiety levels of the healthy group. This was quite a profound reduction in anxiety. And we wanted to actually track this change over time. So we were pinging the patient's smartphone every few hours for a couple days. And what was actually really eye-opening to me is these effects were not just short-lived. Yes, the float itself was reducing anxiety in the moment, 
but we also found that anxiety reduction to maintain itself over the course of the next 24 hours. And to me, this is actually really important because a lot of the current anxiety treatments, for example, benzodiazepines, have a much shorter half-life. Oftentimes, if you were to say, take a Xanax, mm. anywhere from four to maybe eight hours later, you would start to see the anxiety re-emerging. And in our study, what we actually found is 20 to 24 hours later is where the reemergence took place. So in many ways, this was, was outlasting the standard effects of a benzo twofold. And once again, it didn't require any drugs. This was a non-pharmacological therapy. So why is that happening? It made us really curious. What is happening in the nervous system over the course of that one-hour float session that in some way created a reset? It allowed them to go into this physiologically quiescent state that then persevered for a day. And so in order to, to understand this better, it took a little bit of time. We had to measure physiological signals in an environment of water and over a ton of salt. Mm. And anyone who's ever tried to study psychophysiology knows that none of the sensors like water or salt. So we're in a bit of a conundrum. And after uh, destroying quite a few pieces of, of physiological monitoring equipment, <laughs> we figured out how to do this, and it took quite some time. But we're now able to measure, while people are floating, everything from blood pressure to heart rate through EKG to respiratory rate to even uh, brain waves using a frontal EEG system. And all of this equipment, I should mention, is wireless, it's waterproof, it's saltproof, and it's completely non-invasive. In other words, while the patients are floating, they don't even realize the equipment is on them. It's, these are such small, tiny sensors. And the truth is, had I tried to do this uh, even five years ago, the wireless technology was not available. So yeah. this is really a, a lucky byproduct of being in this rapid technological change that we're seeing in society. So this was really the first chance to explore what was happening in both the body and the brain while people are floating and you're seeing this very stressed and anxious nervous system suddenly go into a state of relaxation. It's, it sounds incredible. I mean, it, was, was those, were those sensory things, were they designed and made in America or is it, did you have that, is that technology overseas where, where did you where did you come up with that we we had to source this all over the world it, it was not a trivial process we we in many cases had to collaborate very closely with the manufacturers and of course none of these devices were made for this environment so we had to do things like add tegaderm which is this this waterproof uh, thin plastic layer that mm. they use in hospitals for example yeah to help uh, create a, an environment where the devices could actually measure these signals. So initially the short term, you're looking at the short term side effects and the impact that this had. Tell me, what did you then roll out after that? Were you getting, were you seeing people come in and doing it voluntarily, wanting to do this for a longer period and the results of that and how that's impacted them? Well, I, you know, I would say that so far, all of our studies have been really focused on the short-term effects of floating. Okay. Uh, we've just begun our, our first long-term set of clinical trials in patient populations. I mentioned uh, yesterday at the conference, we were just funded by the National Institute of Health, which is the, the federal agency of the U.S. government. Um, and it's the first time 
the NIH has ever funded float research, and it's for the purpose of looking at uh, conducting these longitudinal randomized controlled trials. So we've launched that this year, and it's going to be ongoing for the next several years. But you know, in these short-term studies, really what we're focusing on is to try to track the relaxation response, quantitated uh, across these different devices that we're using to measure it. And, and if you'd like, I'd be happy to, to share some of those results. That'd be great. I mean, we, yeah, we, tell us about the results and, and, and the proof so that people can get their confidence and actually see how it's actually been applied. You know, to me, one, one of the, the most obvious changes that we found, and this was not subtle in, in any way, shape, or form, was blood pressure. You know, right now, uh, the, the guidelines for hypertension have, have actually changed. And uh, the new definition of stage one hypertension is a blood pressure of 130 over 80, which means millions and millions of people who have mostly healthy uh, histories are now going to have a pretty serious medical diagnosis. And what we found with floating is that within the first 10 to 15 minutes of the float experience, there's a precipitous drop in your blood pressure. On average, it's about 10 to 15 points. Wow. So that, in other words, could take somebody who's in the range of hypertension and bring them into a normal, mm. normotensive range. Uh, the patients that we were studying did oftentimes have hypertension. And what we did find is during the float session, they would, in fact, go into a normal range. The diastolic blood pressure is what showed the largest drop, as I said, about 10 to 15 points. Systolic blood pressure was dropping about five points. Another aspect of this, though, that I should mention is we found this in everyone we studied, whether they were healthy or a patient. Mm -hmm. It seemed to be a reflexive response of being in the float environment and we, we're actually trying to understand the mechanism of this now. We've had several control conditions where we'll have people lying in a zero gravity chair or this bed of water that doesn't allow you to touch it. We call it dry floating. You're just kind of, it's kind of like a waterbed, but you're immersed into it. Wow. And we're not seeing these same blood pressure drops in the control conditions. Mm -hmm. So it seems to be quite unique to the float environment. Likewise, you know, we were measuring heart rate and heart rate variability, and what we found is this significant improvement in heart rate variability, especially the high frequency range, which is a, a relatively pure measure of the parasympathetic nervous system. So all these data are starting to indicate that what floating seems to be doing is reflexively, without any work on the participant, creating a relaxation response of the nervous system. And to me, this is powerful because these are patients who are chronically anxious. A lot of the people in our study had suffered for years or even decades, and they weren't finding respites from this chronic anxiety in other modalities. But for whatever reason, floating seemed to just shift their nervous system into that relaxed state. It must be so uh, such a, an inspiring and uh, motivating thing for you to see the changes in response to, to patients and the impact that this is having. Tell us a bit about some of those stories. Have you had some stories of people that, that couldn't leave the house and have never been outside in a, long, in a long time come and experience this, and how have you seen the changes in them? You know, th this is the part that you know, really gets me up in the morning. This is, this is what inspires me to come to work every day. Is This is a non-pharmacological therapy that is actually having long-lasting impact. 
We're going to try to assess this in these longitudinal RCTs that we've started to really get a better sense of it. But anecdotally, the patients are actually finding the experience to be tremendously helpful and tremendously easy to engage in. This is oftentimes a very hard part of anxiety treatments. They're, they're very difficult. For example, I, I spent several years uh, working with veterans who have post-traumatic stress disorder doing a therapy called prolonged exposure therapy. And you're in the trenches there. You're going into the trauma, you're going into the real world and trying to encounter the very things you're avoiding. And in many ways, floating could be conceptualized as a form of exposure therapy. I, and we could talk about that a little later, perhaps. But what I'm finding is that the patients find the therapy to be tremendously easy to engage in. In fact, you don't have to do anything. The environment does all the work for you. And so what happens is, I think, a little bit complicated. We, we may have to sort of unpack this a little bit. But when the patients are floating, all of the external senses are reduced to a minimum. But what is enhanced are the internal senses. Patients are saying that they're feeling their heart beating, they're feeling their breath, and they're entering into a state of mindfulness spontaneously. These are patients, mind you, who really struggle mm. with present moment awareness. When you're chronically anxious, your mind and your mindset is constantly in a future state. Mm. When you're depressed, you're constantly uh, ruminating about the past. To be focused on the present moment and grounded in visceral sensation is actually quite a difficult uh, process for these patients. But the float environment was naturally creating a bridge to those mindful states. This was really important, I think, because for many years people have referred to floating as a form of sensory deprivation. But in fact, what we're finding is it's creating this tremendous enhancement of internal sensations. The whole word of sensory deprivation appears to be a misnomer. And the patients themselves are naturally and spontaneously reporting this. I didn't cue them at all to the fact that their heartbeat would become the center of conscious awareness or their breath mm. would become the center of conscious awareness. This just happened naturally. And in many ways, it sort of creates this spotlight of attention onto the breath and allows the patients to just hinge or, or attach their attention onto that sensation. And suddenly, all of those worries in the future, all of those ruminations about the past, literally dissipated away. The internal cognitions in the patients they were reporting during the debriefing interviews died away over the course of the hour float session. And that tells us something. It tells us something about the way their nervous system is working. And it tells us something about the fact that the real world is just exacerbating all of these internal cognitions. And it does take an environment like flotation to shift the nervous system into a place where they're even able to practice mindfulness. Mm. So this, this is really an answer to your, your question, kind of coming full circle. The aspect of floating that I think could really benefit them in the real world. They've now uh, experientially been able to go into a state of mindfulness, learn how to focus their attention on present moment sensations, and how to calm their nervous system. This is the, the skills that if they could bring to bear in the real world, that's where uh, the transcendence from the float experience could be very powerfully, uh, very, very powerful clinically, I should say. This is what we're trying to study in the longitudinal RCTs. Mm -hmm. 
anecdotally, we have seen uh, some of this in the real world where patients, for example, who are really avoiding things like public speaking, where your heart is palpitating, mm. you're nervous, and you just want to flee those situations, sort of like a deer in headlights. Mm. These patients have reported that after repeated float sessions, suddenly when they go up in front of a group of people, they feel their heart palpitating, they feel their breath constricting. They could go back to the float environment, remember those sensations of their heartbeat and the breath, and remember the association of relaxation that came with it, and they could self-regulate. And if floating induces and enhances self-regulation, this could be very powerful from a clinical standpoint. Could you uh, give us some uh, real examples of uh, patients with severe PTSD or anxiety and, and how that's uh, floating has helped um, transform their lives so far? Have you given, have you got any, you don't have to mention their names, but just sort of examples of... Well, I think there's, there's actually someone locally who, who's been very vocal and has come out in the popular press, so uh, it's fair to say their name, but uh, it's a veteran in Australia by the name of Michael Harding. And he's created support groups as well for other veterans to try to help their recovery. But, you know, Michael went to Afghanistan, had a, a long tour of duty, and came home with extremely severe PTSD, so severe that he was visibly shaking throughout the day. That's how, how much his nervous system was ramped up. Extremely hypervigilant, went into a state of severe depression where he couldn't work, he couldn't function, was having trouble with uh, his relationships, and uh, became, uh, came to the point where he was actually having trouble leaving his own house. And you could see, you know, to me this is the, the horrible part of PTSD is it hijacks your life, it hijacks your ability to engage in the world. And this is a young veteran, he had, I think came back when he was 18 or 19 years old, had an entire life ahead of him, and it was just stopping him from living that life. Mm. Eventually, after trying many different medications that he was prescribed, many different therapies, he stumbled upon floating, mostly due to his wife. And he was very skeptical, in fact, at first. And then suddenly, he started floating and noticed quite uh, rapidly all of those nervous aspects of his condition, whether it be the, the shaking of his arms, the palpitations of his heart, the inability to, to, to leave his uh, confines of his own home, all of that had actually gone away within about a month or two of repeated float sessions. So one thing that his case should illuminate wow. is one float session is not going to be enough in mm. these severe cases. Mm. You need to really make it a practice. But the other aspect that I think is quite illuminating is when he actually did make this a practice, he was then able to overcome a lot of his symptoms and emerge into the real world, start functioning again, start forming new relationships, and actually created a whole support group for other veterans to mm. try to help them understand that there are alternative modalities to cope with their symptoms. So I think, you know, in many ways, Michael Harding's case is a transformative case mm. of flotation therapy. There are others, and I think what you're going to find is these are anecdotal stories. They haven't really been quantitatively assessed in proper controlled trials, and, and that's what we're hoping to do over the next few years in our current study. 
Yeah, so so moving forward, you're looking at the longitudinal uh, effects and the impacts and how this can help and try and get some data behind that. What 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 drives you to keep doing this? I know you mentioned some of the stories in the morning. You get up and, and this is the sort of the wins that, that people are having. Is that is that the driver for you to continue doing this research and what you're doing? It, it, it definitely is. It. I think it all comes back to the patients and and just the ubiquitous nature of suffering in this world we live in. You know. <clears throat> It's really, in, in some ways, a paradox. We're, we're living in a society, at least in the Western world, where a lot of our basic needs are taken care of. Mm. Um, you know, most of us, if we need to get groceries, don't have to go out and, and kill an animal, but we could just go to the local grocery store. Yeah. We have temperature-controlled uh, bedrooms at night instead of having to worry about saber-toothed tigers jumping out of the woods to kill us. Um, if we want to listen to music, we now have the ability on our phone to have the entire discography of all of music and the history of music mm. at our fingertips. Mm. So we're in this society where our basic needs and our comforts are just given to us mm. in a way that no other previous generation of human civilization has had. Yet, when you ask us, how are we feeling? We are enormously stressed out. We are enormously anxious as a society. This is paradoxical. Mm. This should be the moment where we're thriving, where we're able to live in comfort and peace, yet you're not seeing that. And so to me, I think it's incumbent upon us to figure out ways at a societal level to induce states of comfort and relaxation and contentedness and peace. Otherwise, you know, this is where you see this, uh, the horrible atrocities of war, you see this uh, uh, epidemic of burnout that's happening across society and the workforce. And so in many ways, what floating is, in, is an antidote to modern society. It's an antidote to this constant stream of stimulation mm -hmm. that is affecting our nervous system in ways that we don't fully understand. I mean, you just think of the average smartphone user. Mm. When you look at your data, you, now you could do that. Mm. Over this past year, they've given you the ability to track your own usage of smartphones. Most of us are on this 40 hours or more a week. Mm. Had you told us 10 years ago that a full-time job would have been spent with us you know, looking at these little tiny black boxes yeah. one foot away from our face and just constantly interacting with it, what is that doing to our nervous system? We don't know. We're the guinea pig generation. And so I think what... I'm trying to understand with floating is is there a way to naturally reset and recalibrate the nervous system a nervous system that's been inundated with stimulation a nervous system that's chronically anxious and stressed is there a way to reset that naturally without drugs and do it in a way that people could become more mindful of how quickly we are shifting into these other states where we're constantly worried about the future constantly uh, 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 regretting things about the past. I think, you know, the more we could engage in present moment awareness, the more that we could facilitate this idea of mindfulness, mm -hmm. the more people will recognize that we are living in a day and an age where we don't have to be worried so much about all the things that are causing our anxiety and stress. I think this is a great opportunity for the human species to really take a step back and realize you know, this whole survival of the fittest mentality. We've made it. We've survived. 
we've created, uh, in many ways, the ultimate life of comfort, yet none of us are feeling comfortable. So this is, this is where I think floating could fit into this. It's such an interesting perspective, uh, and you're an uber-smart person, and uh, we're lucky to have you do, leading such great research to, to help uh, people with those sort of mental health challenges, with anxiety, with PTSD. I mean, the, the impact that this could potentially have is very exciting, and I understand that that's what's driving you. So to have you out there leading this is, is really uh, yeah, quite, uh, quite a pleasure, and, and we thank you for that. Tell me about kids. Is, have you done any studies with kids uh, in, in this environment, and have you seen any results um, because kids these days, as you're talking about with social media, with technology, anxiety levels in kids is something that's, that's really uh, becoming quite a, quite a challenge. You know, we, we haven't, and, and partially that's just a structural issue when, when you have to uh, do IRB-approved research, ethically-approved research, it becomes a lot harder to study uh, children under the age of 18. Okay mainly because you have to then get the parents involved and the whole consent process becomes harder. I would love to study this population. I think adolescents especially are going through so much change in their nervous system. It's the, really the moment where a lot of the, the stress and anxiety disorders begin emerging. And to be able to prophylactically allow uh, uh, teenagers and children to float every week, say, over the course of their development, what would that do to their long-term prognosis? This is a fascinating question. The current research that we are doing in, in uh, younger people is actually a study that my colleague, Dr. Saib Khalsa, is running in women with anorexia nervosa. In many cases, this could begin in adolescence and we have started to study the effects of floating in this population, including in um, women as young as uh, 15 and 16 years old. Wow. So, you know, I think there, there is a lot of potential to study uh, the younger generation. They, they are hyperstimulated. I think a lot of what we're calling ADD is actually a byproduct of this hyperstimulation. And in many ways, floating could help uh, perhaps uh, quell this. There's no dangers, though, for kids to get in, the, uh, in one of these pools. There's no uh, reason why uh, you know, a 12-year-old sh shouldn't be able to, to undergo this sort of therapy. Well, this, this brings up, I think, an interesting question. What are the safety issues of floating? To me, I think there's a couple things we need to, to think about. First of all, the, the biggest safety risk is you're in a wet environment. And you have to be very careful coming in and out of the pools or the tanks so you don't hit your head and mm. slip and fall. I'd mm. say that's probably the biggest safety risk. So just tread cautiously. Yeah. Uh, the second thing is the salt. You're in an environment with you know, hundreds and hundreds of kilos of Epsom salt. Yeah. And if you should splash yourself in the face or, or scratch your eyes, it, it's quite a burning sensation. So you've got to make sure you, you don't get it in your eyes or mouth. But as long as uh, you're not scratching yourself or splashing, that's usually not a problem. Mm. Now, psychologically, we've been closely following the, the potential adverse effects of floating in patients. Mm -hmm. People with PTSD who may have flashbacks, people with panic disorder who may get panic symptoms suddenly. We've really monitored this closely. So far, what I could say is we have not seen many safety issues arise. But it doesn't mean they're not there. I think people need to tread cautiously. Hmm. 
I always encourage patients to take floating at their own pace. For example, if you're not ready to have the lights off, keep the lights on. If you're not ready to have the door completely closed to your pod or to your float tank, if you don't have the opportunity to have an open float pool, then just keep the door open. Don't feel like you have to be in an enclosed setting. If you'd like to have music on so you're not in, in total silence, go ahead and have it playing. And I think if you just take this at your own pace, you don't rush into the full immersive float experience right away, we're finding that it's actually quite safe. And I, what I'd also encourage too is if there's any patients listening to this, talk to your provider. Make sure that if anything does go wrong, you have an outlet or a resource to, to discuss this with in process. But I also think it's important to recognize that this is a, a place that is supposed to be very safe and conducive um, to your relaxation. This is your chance to take a respite from all of those thoughts and memories you've been having, from all of the stress that's been inundating you from the world outside. And so just realize when you're going into this experience that this is really for you. You're, you're trying to reconnect with yourself. You're trying to understand yourself in a much deeper way and allow yourself then to enter into the float with that mindset. That's very important. Mm. Is there a certain number of, uh, some people, if they take this to the extreme, like is how many, what's the healthy number of times you should float? Is it, and it may be variable, but is there like a, once a month is really good for your for the um, for the impact it can have on your on your stress levels and, and just bringing you back to that mindfulness. Is it a, once a week? What's what's the sort of periodic? You know, we're we're actually trying to figure this out. What is the optimal dose of floating? And in fact, in our current clinical trial, one of the arms is called the preferred arm, where we let the patients decide how long they want to float for and how frequently. And, you know, we're going to learn a lot, I think, just from that group of patients. Okay. Now, anecdotally, what I could tell you is a lot of the patients I'm working with will want to float anywhere from one to two times a week. Mm. I think if you're in the group of, of healthy subjects that we're studying, that's where you get into more of the monthly float sessions. Okay. But it's really subjective. I think for, mm. for some people who... Um, who actually implement this as part and parcel of their weekly routine, they're finding that there is this residue, and we kind of discussed this earlier, where the effects of floating actually transcend the experience and carry forward for several days into the real world. And to me, this is the most interesting part of floating, the fact that there is this residue and that it doesn't just end with the experience. How often uh, are you floating uh, at the moment? <laughs> I could say being one of the world's only researchers studying it, it's, it's a bit stressful because we have to really dot our I's and cross our T's. There's a lot of work to be done, in fact. So I do float on a regular basis. I try to float at least once a week. Sometimes I, I notice that I go a little bit longer, and that's where I actually find myself saying, ah, oh, when's the last time I had a float? So I do about uh, weekly float sessions. Tell us a bit about the uh, who's been the biggest influence uh, on your career, on your life to date. Have you got anyone or a couple of people in particular? Well, you know, one, one person who I think has, has had a real profound influence on me is Dr. Martin Paulus. Mm -hmm. He's the, the scientific director at the Laureate Institute where I work and was really one of the visionaries who believed in the idea of floating to begin with. But Dr. Paulus was also my original mentor in neuroscience, going back over 20 years ago. Wow. 
Wow. Uh, when I was just an undergraduate student at the University of California, San Diego, uh, he took me under his wings. He helped train me in neuroscience and how to do functional magnetic resonance imaging. And when I met with him, you know, about six years ago, before uh, this whole endeavor began, and explained to him about my idea of floating, it was right at that time when he was offered the, the directorship of the Laureate Institute. And that's when we both decided to leave uh, the comfy confines of California and move to Oklahoma to pursue mm -hmm. this line of research and really other lines of research to try to help those with mental illness. What an exciting journey you're on. Is, have you got any recommendations for book lists for people? Is there any certain books, whether it's to do with, with floating or science or just personal development that you've read that have helped you? Boy, that's a good question. Um, you know, we were actually uh, just talking about this last week. So this book comes to mind, which is Siddhartha. Wow. And uh, this is a Herman Hess book. Herman Hess, uh, for those who don't know, is a brilliant writer, and he also had many mental health issues. Uh, he was being seen by Carl Jung, and um, going through these issues uh, while he was writing. And Siddhartha is really a story of a journey of overcoming suffering, of understanding life in its purest form, and what it takes to get there. And I think all of us in, in, in many ways are on this same journey. And um, at the end of the book, I would say, you know, he talks about the importance of water um, and uses the metaphor of a river. I don't want to give it away, but yeah. uh, I think it, it, it sits very well with this whole conversation we're having with floating. Well, there you go. If you don't have the book, uh, go out and find it and, uh, and read it and find out for yourself uh, how it's uh, helped. Uh, inspire Justin. Tell us, is there any advice you would give to your 20 year old self? Is, is there anything you look back and say, well, now knowing what I know or don't do, after you've done what, you, what you're doing, uh, is there anything you'd, you'd sort of say to yourself? You know, I think when I was in my 20s, it was always, it was always about the destination. Mm. It's, you know, how do you get from point A to point B as quickly as possible? And I think as I'm getting older now and, and reflecting back on things, it's, it's really the journey. Mm -hmm. um, even this, this voyage to Australia uh, this week, you know, it's part of the journey, getting to meet people, getting to spread ideas, getting to share ideas. And if we're always just thinking about, you know, the end point, I think we sometimes miss what a brilliant journey it is. And so that's what I would, I would tell myself. Some uh, great words of wisdom there. It's it's incredible to have you uh, here with me uh, on, on this podcast and to hear all the great stuff that you've been up to and and uh, and it's so exciting and fascinating to hear about what you're doing and what what possibilities this could lead to. Uh, is there any before we sort of sign off? Is there any question that you wish I had asked you that I haven't yet asked you about? You know, what one thing that. Um... I, I do want to just alert the listeners to is the evidence base of floating is still in the early stages. You know, we're conducting some of the first clinical studies on this. We still have a long ways to go. Um, you know, we're going to be focused on this issue uh, very closely over the next decade. If you'd like to learn more about what the evidence base is, there's actually a website that has been created 
www.clinicalfloat.com. And if you go to that website, there's a whole repository of all the peer-reviewed science behind floating, both the work we discussed on this podcast, as well as other work happening around the world. And as the evidence base grows, as we understand uh, its therapeutic benefits, I think this is going to be a great resource for the community and also for clinicians who might be interested in, in using floating for their patients. And that's how they can get in touch with you as well? Is that, that, that website leads to you? No, that, that's a separate website. If they'd like to get in touch with me, they could always feel free to email me. My, my email address is jfeinstein at liber.net, L-I-B-R.net. Justin, it's been a pleasure to have you, and as I said, I'm sure we're going to hear more about you in the future. With uh, the stuff that you've done to date is so inspiring, and the and the effects and the impact this is having, and the potential it can continue to have uh, on people with mental health challenges uh, and just general day to day life is is amazing. So uh, watch this space, and I'm sure we're going to hear more about it. Thanks very much for your time, and thanks for coming to Australia uh, and to share all your journey with us uh, today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.